hey jordan uh, what's up how's it going oh dude rob i we've got a lot to do yeah tell me about it yeah well i mean i don't know if you heard but we got tapped by um the dnc to help put together some of the more the, the creative uh for oh, we the convention that. this week yeah we got it we landed the contract oh nice yeah very I'm nice fucking stoked okay so huge payday yeah, obviously so you're working on some stuff there like what do you got uh yeah what are you working yeah. on so far so i'm thinking for this we um well first i pitched them on the idea that uh you know it's got to be entertaining because you know we, we, it's a it's a competitive landscape out there for for entertainment and streaming i mean we're not just like you know we're not just competing with other like news events like we were competing with netflix now and hey and hulu because yeah. everyone's everyone's streaming everything so they're gonna be streaming this so we gotta make it quibby yeah of course we need to uh prioritize entertainment so what better way uh to to kick this thing off than maybe have some some musical performances and uh, people were saying like well what about like you know debuting like a huge progressive policy proposal or, or things like that and it's just like no 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 People want to be placated. They want to be entertained Ugh, right now. Yeah. Let's sedate them. Yeah, because I mean, now is definitely not the time. You know, when there's this pandemic going on, there's this you know impending eviction crisis. There's all these these various crises going on. People don't want to hear about like quote unquote solutions to these things. And you know, like how do we fix our healthcare system? And how do we make sure millions and millions of people aren't evicted? You know, they don't want to. They want to think about this stuff. What they want to do is just turn their brain off for a couple of minutes. Um, and, and really what, what I think they really want is a return to normalcy, right? They want the mm -hmm. orange man out of there. So let's just get all this kind of policy and, and you know, details and things like this. They don't want to hear about any of this stuff. So I think that, I think you're bang on correct that, you know, that we should stay as far away from that stuff as possible. Yeah. Yeah, I think we treat we treat this like a like a music festival or something like that. So like Billy Eilish, uh, maybe we can get the national up there. Maybe uh, Cardi B can do WAP. Uh, you know, just things like that. I think would be the the best way to handle a a, a political party's uh, convention. Yeah. What do you, what do you think? Okay. There was one thing that I did see that I was a little alarmed by, which is I saw that AOC was just getting a minute of time to speak at the convention uh, that's too much yeah is there any way yeah is there any way we can cut that down i was thinking maybe we could get like a montage of other republicans we've already got john Kasich speaking could we get like more yeah. republicans in there because i think it's kind of sending the wrong message that uh you know that's a party that's for like liberal progressive ideas and you know something that would young young people would be excited by we don't want that so yeah. if there's a couple more like geriatric republicans we could also trot out there i think that would probably be way better Definitely. So you know that shirt that everyone likes to wear? It's like Alexandria and, and then the ampersand and then Ilhan and Rashida and Ayanna. Yeah, yeah. You know, what if we did that, but it's like Kasich and Bloomberg and Scott Walker and, you know, and we just did like oh, yeah. Rick Scott. And we get nice. people like that and just show that like, you know what, we're we're putting uh, country before party. We are, this is a bipartisan effort. We are... Uh, fully embracing Republicans, and and we just you know kick her off the bill. Uh, maybe we can cut a couple other people, and we get we get the Marco Rubios in there, we get the Rick Scotts in there to show that like we are we are one country. What's Brett Stevens united. doing? Brett Stevens? Oh my God, he'd be fantastic. We got to get more of those Never Trump guys in there because they've got a huge constituency like in the media, and also lots of voters obviously really pay attention to a lot of what those guys say. So. 
I mean, Barry Weiss, I know she's got more free time on her hands lately. Like we could reach right. out to her as well. And Absolutely. She, you know, she's going to appeal to the young, hip millennials, the young people. They all love Barry Weiss. So let's bring her yeah. into the Democratic National Convention as well. Well, there's also one thing like with the Kasich stuff, um, you know, he's got his record isn't the greatest, but, you know, this is how I this is how I operate called my friends over the human rights campaign and i said look look take one for the team can you just delete everything you've ever written about john Kasich's long well-documented history of anti-lgbt yeah. uh uh you know offenses and governance they're like yeah sure wiped out it's like it never existed record gone john Kasich yeah. woke bay let's go yeah, and I'm sure and that also applies to his his long uh, career as being like against abortion rights and that kind of stuff as well. That's also oh, being yep. excised. Gone. Yeah, it, it never okay, happened. Okay, good, good stuff. So I think so. The, we're, it's all leading up to the, you know the big uh, keynote speech by Biden. We all love to hear Joe Biden speeches. Um, so what I'm thinking, you know, you get one of those those classic kind of sketches beforehand on the video big video screen. I think we can. This is something we can pitch the Lincoln Project on. Maybe they could be producing mm-hmm. this. Uh, we, we, you know, obviously, we want to continue working with them as much as possible. But you know, it's a, it's Biden kind of getting ready for his big speech. He pulls up in his dad's old vet. It's gleaming in the sun. He's okay. got the aviators on. He's got a big, big old thing of ice cream in his hand. Oh shit! And maybe we could just have that instead of a speech. You just have that. You just have that picture because that's yeah. what people want, right? That's what oh, they're looking yeah. for in a, in a platform for a political party. They want memes. And so they also asked us to do like some graphic design. Since they can't have people like physically there holding up signs, they asked us to make like, you know, graphics for social and stuff. So I said, yeah, yeah, okay. So, uh, you know, someone, I can't, I don't know who, but someone in their orbit said like, well, could you make like, you know, Medicare for all and like, you know, shit like that. I said, no, no, no. Yeah, no, no. The way we're going to get people fired up, silhouettes of aviator sunglasses. I mean, come on. Yep. Who doesn't like that? He's cool. Donald Trump's not cool. Okay, hello. Hello and welcome, everyone. It's The Insurgents, episode 35. I am Rob Rousseau here. Hey. Along with with Jordan Yule. One day we're going to get that transition. It's going to be seamless. Mm-hmm. Today's you not know, that day. Possibly. Maybe, <laughs> maybe when we get to the triple digit episodes, we're going to nail that. We're yeah. Nail that whole yeah. intro. Uh, you're doing okay, though? How's it going, man? Uh, I think so. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. Sure. <laughs> I don't know. Are Same. You? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. No, I'm terrible. Okay. Um, but... <laughs> But it's a pleasure to be back um, with another episode of The Insurgents. Uh, and it's going to be a really good one. We've got Riley and Nate from Trash Future um, yeah. on the show to talk about. Uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about what's happening in the UK right now, uh, particularly the way the British press uh, has covered the Conservative Party and their like massive institutional failures to control coronavirus. Uh, contrast that with the way that they're completely unified in opposing uh, Jeremy Corbyn's kind of like a left-wing approach and the way that they kind of really worked to sabotage his whole campaign. There's some very strong parallels with the way the British press uh, treated Corbyn with the way the American press treated Bernie Sanders. So uh, whether you live in the UK or not, uh, there's, there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from the way like elites 
uh, in government, in the media function. And we talked about a lot of that stuff with, with Nate and Riley. It was really good stuff. Yeah, this is a great conversation. Um, thankful those guys came on. Uh, did I, I always learn a lot when we do episodes about uh, UK because like, I'm, I'm a fucking idiot and I don't yeah. know. I don't know. I don't know that stuff. Yeah. Well, um, when it comes to like the ruling cr- class, um, I was about to say ruling crass. That's a little bit of a oh shit Freudian t- t- situation. Yeah. Uh, but just extremely depraved, especially in the, in the British press. Uh, really just a, a complete other level of cynical bootlicking cowardice uh, that's on display on a daily basis there. Um, and it's uh, it's very illustrative to, to talk about the ways that they, they cover um, the elites, elite British society or the ways that they don't do that. Uh, you can really learn a lot from, from hearing these guys talk about this stuff. So we're going to get to that in just a little bit. Uh, I guess we should probably talk about Kamala Harris, right? Yeah. Veep. I think, I think so. Yeah. What do you, you think this? about the... Oh, you're gonna ask me first. Okay. Uh, yeah, I was gonna kind of <laughs> kick it over to you. I don't really feel anything at all. Right? I, that's the thing. So it's just going. like I think, based on who the kind of the final candidates were, I would have wanted. I mean, this, I think the three big, the big names were Susan Rice, Kamala Harris, and Karen Bass. I would have preferred Karen Bass just because she was the most progressive of the three. Um, but yeah, that's it's fine. I guess it could be worse. I don't. I don't think anyone's gonna be like sway. If you were like on the fence i don't think kamala harris is, if you were if you were somehow on the fence between biden and trump like kamala harris is not going to be the person who's like okay well i guess that's decided yeah i think the sc cup uh, op-ed that got a bunch of buzz about that dilemma i don't think is, is disingenuous i think she just wanted a fucking press cycle um and cnn loves just reporting on their own bullshit so i, I think that was just kind of a manufactured narrative no one gives a shit um yeah it's fine she's fine whatever not not my favorite not they could be worse just whatever yeah well it is it is telling though that you know in the midst of this unprecedented uprising based on you know a racial injustice systemic racism uh police violence um the fact that now the democratic party with their ticket is going with joe biden the author of the crime bill and kamala <laughs> harris who has this very long record of being a, a prosecutor um, and you know, a lot of really troubling things in a record about that. Uh, and you know, running on a platform of, you know, giving more money to police, uh, not doing marijuana, marijuana decriminalization. It's really amazing. Like how contrary to what popular opinion is telling them they should do to what their actual strategy is. And I think that that shouldn't be surprising to anyone considering, you know, what happened throughout this primary, but it is very telling that this is the ticket they've gone with um, in a moment like this. And it shows what their priorities are and about how they're not really interested in appealing to like a new constituency, appealing to young people or appealing to more progressive people, but really trying to like lock down these kind of law and order conservatives, uh, never Trumpers. And uh, it remains to be seen whether that's going to actually work this time. Yeah. If they win, if Biden and Harris win, what I've been thinking about a lot lately is 2024. And if yeah. everything about Biden that we have heard and know is true, that he's probably just a one and done guy, because I don't, I mean, that job ages you. Um, and I'm, I, I'm, yeah. I'm really trying to just be careful with how I talk about his mental state. Uh, cause I don't want to like a veer into just kind of like smearing and that kind of shit. Cause I think both of them are obviously old and declining, but like I, this job 
if you are the president and ages you, we see it with everybody, like that's going to severely impact Biden's uh, abilities. So I do think for maybe for that reason, he would be a one term president. He's very old. And well, hasn't he that, said as much? Like, hasn't he said, he like, did, I only intend to serve one term? Dude, they, I, I don't trust it until I see it. But I think the, I think the, the, the stress and the rigor of the job would push him into that uh, position more than his own, like, determination and self-will. This, I think, um, would set up a, a Harris just kind of coronation in 2024 where, oh, she's the likely the likely candidate. Let's just go with her. It's safe, you know, kind of playing into that same type of rhetoric we tried to see them roll out this year where it's like we just have to be Trump. Whoever is going to run that year, whether it's Tom Cotton or Dan Crenshaw or whatever, it's going to be they are going to be the greatest threat to democracy ever. And we have to yeah. we just have to do it because we just have to beat him. Uh, and that's that's what it is. And I'm just dreading we're not going to have um, an open and fair primary again. And they're going to because her diehards and her supporters are insane it's going to be like yes. you remember the character assassinations of of sanders supporters and and 16 um and to some extent this year it's going to be just so fucking magnified it's everything rolled into one because she kind of embraces the 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 woke veneer without any like policy substance behind it uh so i i, I just 2024 if she is going into that as the vp and is running it's going to be a fucking disaster yeah so a couple things here because one thing that i i do find interesting is that i mean from the beginning of this primary she was kind of one of the people that they the it seemed like the establishment was kind of trying to anoint as mm-hmm. the front runner she kind of had a brief period as being the front runner um and was kind of talked about in the media with that kind of stature but was kind of really rejected by actual people that are voting and throughout this process was polling abysmally in her home state and dropped out before the actual uh primary um so and and going by other statements biden has made about how he sees his role as kind of handing off the the party to the kind of younger generation the kamala harris's the pete Buttigieg's. again both of these, like, and you know, anyone in that kind of category was roundly rejected by voters and by young people, especially who all liked Bernie Sanders, who they, you know, made sure would never be the nominee. So there's this interesting situation now where she's kind of like, regardless of being rejected by voters uh, in that process, now she's being kind of anointed as the front runner to probably be the next president in 2024. And that, that's another interesting thing that I wanted to mention as well. You kind of touched on it because um, we've seen already since her announcements, a lot of really uh, racist and unhinged attacks against her from the right, kind of already starting with kind of birtherism, talking about mm-hmm. whether she, you know, kind of treating her like she's like a, she's a foreign or she's not eligible to even run, really trading on these really disgusting kind of racist tropes, which obviously should be condemned. It's very, very terrible, but I have a strong feeling like what you're hinting at here is that in 2024, if they do try to anoint her as the, uh, the new candidate, then like the net to be the next president, if there is any kind of an insurgent sort of left challenge to that, I don't know if that's even possible at this point or whether that's going to happen, but mm-hmm. you better believe that any criticisms of her record, either as the vice president or her record as a prosecutor, her, her terrible record on trans issues as attorney general, uh, all of this stuff is going to be framed as the left being uh, racist, sexist, uh, misogynist, uh, and it's all going to be lumped into that same category, similar to what happened with Hillary. 
they obviously are, are definitely attacked by by people from the right that use those kind of that kind of language. Very disgusting. Uh, but definitely any substantive critique of her record is going to be framed in the same way. And it's if we thought if we thought 2020 was a, a bad example of that, the whole Bernie bro discourse. Uh, I think you're absolutely right that 2024 is going to be even worse and a lot even more unbearable than all that. Yeah, and, it's, and Bernie's not even running that year. I mean, I think I think just the, the safe assumption is that he's yeah. done. Um, but it's like it would be funny know, if he did run again. In oh, dude, it would be. A fucking I know it's not going to happen, but just for just for pure uh, for pure <laughs> comedy purposes, it would be as quite a hilarious. spectator sport for you. That'd be hilarious. As someone who yeah. would probably be in the the muck and mire of it, it would be miserable. Um, but you know, I, I just, the thing is, it's not even, it, here's the thing. If it's like her and Susan Rice and that's it, let's just say hypothetically, like I'm going to back her because she's the most progressive. I mean, I'm just going to go for whoever is the farthest left candidate, um, because that we need to just continue strengthening, uh, those types of, those types of policy ideas. But like the issue is like, we just need an open and fair primary. Like we shouldn't have anything close to what we had in 2016 where the party brass just decided in, in advance all right this is it this is what everyone has to get behind and all the money goes there and everyone supports them and then you attacks people who don't that is like that's just like i don't know it's antithetical to what i understand to be like a, an autonomous uh and, and democratic process but what the fuck do i know so i, I just i'm dreading 2024 <laughs> just because of this i often ask myself that as well right right <laughs> yeah no uh it's going to be very bad. Yeah. I um, you know, if there if if even America exists in its current iteration at that time, which is not really <laughs> a guarantee at this point. So. Right. Yeah. Uh yeah, so I you know, as the weeks go on, we can talk about this more. I don't think we need to get too into this uh now, but yeah, I think it's it's it says a lot about what the priorities of the Democratic Party establishment are in terms of their policies and in terms of like who they see as as wanting to take over the mantle of the party once the kind of old guard, uh, uh, you know, moves on. And uh, if you really care about if you're passionate about these kind of bold, progressive left wing ideals, you know, that's not really a great sign, I think, for you. Um but uh, we'll we'll see how that goes. We're gonna keep talking about that more. Is there anything else you wanted to get into? Um, I mean, I guess it's worth pointing out that we talked about how Trump is going to like definitely cast doubt on the election results, and uh, a lot of what he's doing right now with the post office is like a part of that. And it's kind of one of those things this week where he said the quiet part out loud as he often does. And was like, oh yeah, we're not going to know the results for months or years. And he's he's already just openly saying that like there we're will not we're not going to have a result for this election in November, and already laying the the groundwork to just turn that even more into a just complete shit show. That's pretty alarming. Yeah, I I don't know. <laughs> it's it's not going to be uh, it's not going to be very good. I don't think this whole this whole thing. That's my astute analysis. <laughs> no, I mean, the, the, the USPS attacks are just like, ha- like happening in broad daylight and people are just kind of like, oh, yeah, <laughs> of course. Yeah, sure. I, I think people are, you know, frustrated, but also it's just like so many people feel powerless. Like, what are they? They have no recourse. What are they going to do to stop it? You know, and the Democrats are like, oh, well, OK, maybe we'll come back to 
Well, maybe we'll come back to Congress and later in the month and we'll talk about this. What? <laughs> Why aren't you doing this right now? Yeah. Uh, whatever. I, I, hey, I, they, I, don't, I, they don't owe you anything, all right? That's true. Yeah, they don't. <laughs> so let's, yeah. They need time to, uh, they need to do self-care right now, okay? It's very important I, that we let them, I get to give them space I to get do it. this. You know, I see you and I hear you, but we need to, we need to pull back on that. Um, yeah, it is kind of funny seeing Democrats being like, someone needs to do something about this. But it's like, aren't you like a, a senator? You know, maybe you oh, should. Dude. I don't know. There's <laughs> only like two people who I will like. And there's like actually like the only person I won't like tease who does that is Ilhan Omar. But just, but just because she actually does try to do all this stuff and like her own party just shuts her down in Congress. So she's like trying to build yeah. support. But like when people like Chris Murphy or like Eric Swalwell, who are firmly within the party establishment and have that like direct access to like Pelosi's ear and, and, and Schumer's ear for this kind of shit. When they tweet it, it's like, we got to fight back. It's like, okay, go for it. Do it. Yeah. Do something. Well, yeah. And we talked about it how as well, a lot of the pretext to dismantling the United States postal service is based on uh, the USPS being deliberately sabotaged by Republicans in the George W. Bush era, which is not something that during the eight years of the Obama administration, anyone made any effort to fix that or to, uh, to you know, to, to solve these problems or to make it more financially as, uh, solvent um, because it's, it doesn't seem like it's that much of a priority. It's like it's, now, it's, now that Trump is, now that Orange Man is, is, you know, doing these things, now all of a sudden it's his priority. But like, you know, same with a lot of these issues that that Trump has taken advantage of the electoral college, all these kind of like ways that uh, Republicans are able to sort of uh, bend the rules and cheat in order to win. You know, maybe when 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 Democrats hold political power, they can do something to actually solve these issues instead of just complaining afterwards. But again, you know, that's just me. I, I just uh, I don't know what I'm I don't know what I'm talking about. So yeah, well, I mean, this was. I believe, and I'm checking now, but I believe this was a bipartisan vote. If I re- if I remember correctly, this was a bipartisan, like the the Postal Service, uh, what's it called? Like the the Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act was um, what was really causing these problems because it it requires the post office to pay out benefits or put money away for like something insane, like thirty or fifty years in advance. Um, yeah. which just obviously causes them to lose money. Cause like you could, you just can't fucking do that. Like you couldn't which imagine like no if, other government agency is, is required to do also. Yeah. And, um, it's just imagine if you were buying a house and they wanted you to pay everything up front. Like that's, you yeah. know, on, you know, unless you're super wealthy, it's, it's, you know, not feasible. And, the issue here is like, you know, other like you said, other government agencies aren't aren't expected to do this kind of stuff. But also, like, government agencies aren't out there to make like a crushing profit. This is a public service, and this is something yeah. we should value. So, like, to put these unrealistic um, fiscal restrictions on it, we're just setting it up to fail. But this had support from Democrats, and this was also passed in two thousand six. Like you said, what did Obama do about it? You know, there was no yeah, there were no changes made to that. Um, and and now here we are, and everyone's like all the same Obama people were like, oh, this is terrible. <laughs> Who could have seen this coming? Yeah. Because they're using this now as, as the justification. Yeah. And there's a Canadian connection here, too, because this is something that 
if you look at the actual like the, the evidence and the, the ways that they've allowed this kind of stuff to happen, uh, Democrats in the U.S., one of the reasons is because liberals are against these kinds of public services. Uh, mm-hmm. And you've seen Trudeau as well in Canada uh, going after the, the, the Postal Service here in Canada. He uh, he put together uh, back to work legislation when our postal workers were striking um, a few months back. He cut a deal with Amazon at the beginning of this uh, pandemic to to deliver a PPE and like cut the postal workers out of it. Um, and that's because the liberals in Canada and the U.S. and uh, and elsewhere are fundamentally opposed to these kinds of public services, even if they don't come out and admit it. Um, mm. And that's why now that now that now that the bad orange man is using this to kind of like possibly steal the election. Now it's a big problem. But ultimately, when it comes down to the actual policy of getting rid of these services, uh, most of them actually agree with that. Yeah. Oh, just to, just to, just to go back to the vote thing. It passed the House with a voice vote and it passed the Senate. Uh, with unanimous uh, consent, so no Great. opposition, no up or down. It wasn't. It wasn't. You know, the opposition wasn't substantial enough to even warrant a uh, a uh, roll call vote. Yeah. Great job. So this everybody. isn't like a oh Bush. Uh, Bush did this terrible thing, and it's his fault. It's like yeah, this was a bipartisan. Uh, and thing. I'm sure there was a ton of lobbying on the behalf of like FedEx and UPS. So the Democrats just sure. like, oh yeah okay, great. Well. uh uh, none of that adds up to anything good. So uh, we'll keep, <laughs> watch how that develops. Uh, but we're getting a little long here. We want to get to Riley and Nate soon. Before they join us, though, it's been a week or two. So I guess it's time for another edition of Feedback Corner. Okay, it's uh, welcome back. It's feedback corner, everyone's favorite segment um, mm-hmm. that we all love to do. Jordan and I, we we talk often about how much we enjoy it and we like it. This is, of course, the segment. I guess I should explain it to first time listeners. This is the segment where we read reviews of the show from Apple Podcasts. Um, Jordan, do you have mm-hmm. a review you can get us started off with? Yeah, I do. Feedback corner. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this one's called Disgusting Behavior, and it's by uh, Small Hands Drump. And they said, it's five stars. It's unbelievable that they did not have Feedback Corner. As a huge fan of Ken's clips, I gotta say I'm really disappointed with the guests Brad and Joseph. I get that he's busy, but That's this not, behavior... Okay. Yeah, I think we should uh, uh, write and ask for a correction. But this behavior is unacceptable. Ken, please do your job. You know, let's add that one to the list as well. It's not Ken's show. No, this is the, not. We've we've talked about this too. This yeah, is the it's, only. It's getting reason, a little frustrating, honestly. This is the only reason I listen to the show. And if you don't bring it back, I'll have to vote for Trump. I don't want to, but I will. Okay. Um, you know, thank you for the five stars. Yeah. I think um, I think you might have gotten our names wrong. You might have also gotten the name of the show wrong. Yeah. And I think you listed uh, Ken as the host as well. So, you know, overall, some uh, some factual errors that might, you, you, if you want to update A lot of those, stuff we can work on in that one. Yeah. 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 But thanks for the five stars. Yep. So here's another review. Also five stars. Uh, it says, these libs don't live in the real world. Uh, mm. These guys come in and talk about their fancy ideas with all of this data and information-backed judgment. But sorry, libs, I see the world with my own two eyes and through my faith. 
They want health care. They want to reduce homelessness. They want equal treatment and pay for women and minorities. They think these ideas will help society and provide historical context for their opinions. Well, sorry, Libs, but that's just not how the real world works. If these things were actually the best ideas, then the free market, in all caps, uh, would have resulted in them happening. Increasing taxes will reduce my incentives. How can you expect me to work hard when the government is handing out things like food to poor people? Wake up and smell the flowers, libs. They smell like freedom and lead. <laughs> Which is... Um, I think bullets. I actually agree with a lot of that. Yeah, frankly and uh, you know if we're if we're more committed to the idea of like you know the marketplace of ideas i think we should we should be including more voices like this we don't want to have an echo chamber so i think it's good to to have these these opinions on featured on the show more often yeah i, th- I think this this review kind of touched on the uh you know the tapestry of america if you will uh we 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 we, we welcome those voices yeah <laughs> i think this is a show that encourages diversity of thought that's great. Yeah, thank you for the, exactly. for the comment. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, you got another one? Yeah. Confused. Five stars. Every episode confuses me. Roger and Jeremy have different opinions in the opening section than they do in the rest of the episode. Which opinions are real? They complain about Cli- Cling- Kingston clip tie breaking their ban. And then let him on the show. I don't understand why he's always on the show if they want him banned. If these are jokes, I would like to be told beforehand so I can understand when they're happening. Confusing your audience is bad for business. Five stars. Uh, yeah. As we said in the past, I think everything before the intro music is is serious. Everything else is a joke. Yeah. The rest is all satire. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I think when we do jokes, maybe we should have some kind of like an interjection if we ever do like a you know a satirical kind of comment, I can kind of punch in afterwards and just be like, "Hey, this by the way, this is a this is like a joke," you know. Yeah, it's better to make that, that stuff clear for people. That's real humor when you do yeah, that. Yeah, so, I'll do it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So this review says uh, it's another five star review. It says Kent complain, uh, and it says it seems I think it's a reference to Ken. <laughs> if that wasn't clear. I got that. Uh, I could say this pod robs me of my precious time, but honestly, but but I honestly have nothing better to do than to listen to these separated at birth Krasenstein brothers. That's not that's not accurate. Okay. Um, if you don't know anything about them, you'll definitely be taken aback by their politics until you realize that although they seemingly believe in socialism, they're still charging people for premium content. <laughs> With a bunch of ex- exclamation marks. Whoa. Yeah, it's hard to respond to that. I actually do sometimes post on the show Twitter account from my iPhone as well. Oh, fuck, dude. I don't know if I should be admitting that, but. Well, I actually don't. I don't even have an iPhone. I have, I use Android, but I, to, for the joke purposes, I. You know. Yeah, Android is socialist uh, compliant, so. That's true. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think we're good. Let's. Anyway, uh, we will. Let's we will try and do better. Yeah. Ready to you talk get to, to the interview now? Yeah, Riley and Nate. Yes. Uh, so let's bring them on in a couple minutes. Uh, subscribe to the insurgents.substack.com. Subscribe to discontents.substack.com. That's our Substack collective with a bunch of really wonderful writers and podcasters. Review the show. Send us an email. Uh, bug us on Twitter. We always enjoy hearing from you. Not always. We often do. Sometimes <laughs> it's not really enjoyable, but 
you know, whatever, that's fine. But uh, I think you're, I think everyone's going to really enjoy this conversation with uh, Nate Bethay and Riley Quinn from Trash Future, and they're going to be joining the program right after this. And now we're joined by uh, Nate and Riley from the podcast Trash Future. Hello, Nate and Riley. Hello. Hello. Thank you for joining us. Um, So usually on this show, uh, we like to start off, before we get into the heavy shit, we start to start off a little small talk. So um, I know we didn't clear this ahead of time. What's what's the gaming situation over there? What are you you gaming? Are you you playing recently? What, What do you got going on over there right now? Man, I'm just playing the same game that I've played for like the last two and a half years, which is Civilization VI. When I feel like oh, I'm nice. staring at my phone too much, uh, I just delete Twitter's app off the phone and just game a little bit to kind of clear my head. And uh, yeah. yeah, Alice from Trash Future used to make the joke about um, how in Civ Six in the expand, expanded pack, you can have a rock band play a concert that turns everybody Muslim. And <laughs> I've just been doing that. It's incredible. You absolutely can. And it's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> that should be a real thing that exists in our own civilization. I think. Wait, what oh, do you right? think the game rock band was? <laughs> oh, if, wow. if you rearrange all the letters of harmonics, then you'll get a uh, Takia. If you replace them with new letters. Right. Damn. Douglas Murray <laughs> here again. Um, what games have I been playing? I've um, well, I, I've mostly been using my PS4 uh, to watch a friend of friend of everyone, friend of every show, Andrew Law's Plex server, um, which is just fantastic. He's recently downloaded every season of the Venture Brothers, so I've been going back through that, and it is as good as when I first saw it. Oh, nice. I need to get Andrew Law's Plex server login credentials. Oh yeah, well, hey, you know, the only way to do uh, to get Andrew Law's Plex server login credentials is to be on a podcast with Andrew Law because when you introduced me, you didn't actually say all the podcasts I was on because I'm on Yes Trash Future, but also the Bony Island Whitefish, a podcast that is syndicated on the Trash Future Patreon, where Andrew Law and I talk about season five of the show Bones. So you know, do your homework. <laughs> I was sorry, I was not. I need to do more research before I start bringing people on now. <laughs> <laughs> I was not aware of that. That sounds um, very entertaining, though. Yeah. Well, hey, you know, uh, that, but that's that's what I've been playing. I've been playing Andrew Law's Plex server. Okay. Um, I've also been watching Cram, uh, a game show from um, uh, a couple decades ago where you're basically, they do enhanced interrogation. You have to do some reading, and then they do enhanced interrogation on you, um, and then you have to answer questions from the reading. <laughs> that sounds hard. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, you know, that's that. Yeah, you're, that's that's right. It is very hard. That's why yeah. it's a game show. Okay, well, that all sounds fun. Oh, indeed. Um, yeah, but you know, I mentioned yeah, you, you guys are on the the podcast Trash Future, based in the UK, of course. Even though uh, Riley, you're Canadian, Nate, you're American. Uh, it's kind of an interesting Correct. mix we got going here. Uh, but I think um, there's a lot of stuff going on in the UK right now that I think we can all, wherever you live. Um, you can really draw important conclusions and learn learn valuable lessons by some of the some of the things that are going on in the UK at the moment. Uh, so, what I wanted to start with, guys. Um, so, in the UK, in terms of coronavirus, um, I'm looking at the stats here. It has not really been going great. 
Uh, There's over 40,000 deaths, uh, over 300,000 mm. cases. Uh, this was very, very obviously mismanaged right from the beginning by the Boris Johnson government. They kind of tried this uh, Sweden strategy of just like, we're going to pretend this isn't happening and just everyone will be fine. Uh, and then drastically changed course when they realized that was going to kill many, many people. Uh, and so a lot of people have kind of fallen through the cracks in that. A lot of people have been, have got the virus. A lot of people have been killed as a result. So it's just been a completely incompetently managed by Johnson from the very beginning. So what I want to know, because obviously the, our friends in the British press are at, for sure. I haven't checked into this, so I'm just <laughs> hoping you can, you can clear this up for me. They've definitely been holding his feet to the fire and holding him accountable for this this really poorly managed uh, coronavirus response. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mr. Prime Minister, at long last, how's your day been? <laughs> um, yeah, I gotta, uh, I gotta throw this in that that not only are they uh, are they being very very ge- gentle and kind and basically anytime the government puts out a terrible strategy all the columnists just say the magic words whatever the government wants to hear over and over again when it was herd immunity every column was why herd immunity is good when it's reopened britain then it was every column was that but even they're, they're even going so far as to retroactively defend sweden i actually i'm signed up to uh to a bunch of right-wing fucking newspapers like the telegraph and the times basically every british newspaper I'm so sorry. to see to see their stupid <laughs> i mean, don't pay them but to see their stupid email alerts and i just saw one from the telegraph recently about what sweden got right or actually it was how sweden got it right Basically, ah. because they have to, for, for for Britain to be correct, they want to create the veneer of respectability. They also have to say that Sweden, Sweden, uh, Sweden did it correctly, even though if you if you look at the death rate, Sweden's is bad. Ours is so bad that if you, I mean, ours our, our actual excess death rate and deaths by you know the um, by by population are worse than the U.S.'s. If you took Britain's um, official death rate, which is constantly tinkered with, it would be as as bad, if not worse, than the U.S. If you take the excess death rates that's reported by the Office of National Statistics, it would be far higher than the U.S.'s. Uh, it's actually incredibly grim here, but you know the, the Tories have gained percentages in polling because this is a country of pay pigs and, and <laughs> hogs for pain. Forensic. Uh, no, yeah. I think the thing to the thing to keep in mind about. Um, about Britain and specifically the press response is you have to kind of work backwards. You have to start with the fact that we have, of um, of the OECD, I think we have the worst death rate and the worst recession. Uh, like we have fucked it up in both key ways. Not good. Um, yeah, yeah uh, pretty bad in fact. <laughs> and then what you have to do is from there, you have to rewind to understand that like the British, uh, like the class solidarity among the upper class in Britain is a stronger force than any other social bond in the entire world. So, you know, I think the the moment that a lot of, well, there are a lot of moments from the early pandemic that a lot of people look at to like understand how badly the media class fucked up holding the government to any kind of account to uh, interrogating anything they did. Because one of the key things to understand about the British media is that they see that they love being in the upper class insiders club with the government. And so they're much more interested in defending the government against the uneducated dum-dums who don't know the science like they and their friends in the government do. And so the thing that always, that always, that I'll never sort of leave my mind is um, Aisha Hazarika, who was an advisor to Ed Miliband and the sort of intellectual force behind the 
uh, controls on immigration mugs that Labor issued for its 2000, I think, 15 campaign. Oh yeah, not not even just that. She was the brain tr- the brain trust that created the Ed Stone. Oh god, if you yeah. Know anything about that? Where. Ed Miliband posed next to an enormous granite obelisk that was carved all of their campaign promises. And it yeah. was just to, to include controls on immigration. <laughs> it was the dumbest thing ever. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it was her idea. <laughs> and it was like, yeah, it's carved in stone because these morons don't understand metaphor. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, that's, that's what it was. They were like, our policies are carved in stone. Look, we've carved them in stone. And one is more racism. Uh, this fucking island, I swear to fucking God. Um, and so essentially... You don't really need to carve that in stone. I feel like it's just implied in most, in most <laughs> British uh, political projects. It's, it's right there in the White Cliffs. Um, yeah, so essentially what she said after, like, the government was allowing, um, I think the Cheltenham races to go ahead, like this great big horse racing event of the year kind of thing, where, like, tons and tons of people... Um, are crammed into quite narrow seats in quite intense stands and so on. Is that on. One, of the, one of the ones where everyone wears fancy hats? Or uh, No, actually, that's that's Ascot. Uh, this okay. is not a fancy hat horse race, necessarily. Okay, sorry. You can wear a fancy hat. It's just not as required. It's not obligated um, to. Okay. Yeah, so she said, uh, when people were saying, oh, this is going to go badly, why are you doing this? She said, oh, yeah, like I need hipster analysis to reassure me. Um, because the only, the only, because the, the British press are so, have such intense class solidarity and such immense contempt for everyone who's not an insider that um, they kind of hate the idea of ever actually like doing a Watergate because that would embarrass the government and prove the dum-dums right. Another thing I would throw into is that in the initial part of the pandemic, the death toll had to be revised because it became clear that the government was only reporting deaths of people who died, number one, in the hospital, number two, after a positive coronavirus test had come through for them. And so if you died at home or if you died before they were they had successfully diagnosed you with coronavirus, they didn't count your deaths. But the most important thing here is that they didn't count people who were dying in elderly care homes. And it was then later revealed that they were mandating the release of people into care homes from the hospital without coronavirus tests. And so the, the, when, when, they, when they revised the death toll to include care home deaths, it became obvious that tens of thousands of elderly people had died. And the reason why they were dying was because they were, people were being sent without basically telling the staff, it's fine, they're fine, it's safe. When these people actually had coronavirus, they just weren't testing them. Hmm. So to give you an idea, and, that, and this hasn't politically damaged the Tories no. a bit. If anything, it's no. helped them. Yeah, well, and this is partly because, right, Britain is an incredible country at just avoiding learning anything new, right? So, like, none of these facts ever kind of make a dent on the kind of just black glass, completely impenetrable British political psyche, which is, and, and this is the same psyche that has been, say, that sees, you know, um, the leaked documents that says that the NHS is going to be sold to American, you know, um, pharmaceutical companies, or that elements of the NHS are going to be sold to American pharmaceutical companies, and then says, ah, I bet you got that from Russia. Where it's yeah. immu- it is immune to learning a new thing. And so the idea that the Tories could have badly bungled the response when the press's attitude is, we know better than you. 
Um, and Ed must always gain say reflexively whatever is uh, popular. It, it's no surprise that the that the that that there is an almost perfect elite alignment, and much of the things that the many of the things that Nate and I are discussing are things that are uncovered by people in their capacity as just some guy, you know, who is who is not a journalist, who's not trying to hold the government to account, who's just interested and does some digging. Because most journalists either don't or won't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and to, be, it, to be honest with you, one thing I will throw in, Rob, before we head back to you is just that uh, a big story today is that the Daily Mail is trying to say that um, that Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings must have gotten coronavirus from Jeremy Corbyn's yes. press advisor. And the way the headline was something to the effect of like, you know, did 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 Corbin's Marxist Seamus Milne give Bojo Corona or something like that? Like yeah. basically every and another person was going on about writing columns about the fantasy hell world we'd live in if Jeremy Corbyn were prime minister. Basically, like in the face of this massive failure, their response is, is basically Jeremy Corbyn jam granddad. It would be worse under him somehow. Yeah. Mm. Well, this is no. This is something I wanted to mention as well. Like uh, we had when we talked about the UK last on this show with uh, Eleanor Penny. It was kind of like when when this was really sort of starting, and you had those like scenes of like shortages of of various food items or or paper towels or toilet paper, whatever it was, and you had like people in Britain showing these empty store shelves in the UK. And saying, like, this is what it would have been like under Prime Minister Jeremy Corbyn. (laughs) And it's like, you're literally in the UK right now, and he's not the Prime Minister. That is what's happening at this moment. And it's like, how do you you resolve that cognitive dissonance? It's very very strange, the obsession that people still have with that. Well, you you resolve it by being angry and getting angry when people point out that you're being insane. Um, Like, it's... It's you ask how you resolve that cognitive dissonance, and you know it's kind of just like, well, it would have been if he was here. It would have been worse. We wouldn't even have had shelves because um, <laughs> it elevates some food over the like the the extent to which he became a the extent to which he became a pantomime villain is I think quite illustrative. Yes, um, and I think something that it really bears a lot of thinking about where he's there to provide the counterfactual of... Because Britain is a country that's theme is misery, where everyone here is only willing to accept that anything exists or that anything should be ordered in such a way that there is always more misery. That's one of the reasons that it's so wildly transphobic and racist and stuff, is that, you know, well, I had a hard time, so this refugee that washed up onto our shores needs to make sure if he gets a penny more in benefits, I will explode with rage. Because um, it's a country that loves misery. And so there was this brief moment where in politics, we were looking at a political way to alleviate some of the misery for quite a few people. And that, that had to be made illustrative. And that had to be shown to be beyond the pale. It needs to be shown that, like, yes, things are bad, but if you tried to alleviate the misery, it would have been even worse. Like, I brought up the Matt Chorley article, the uh, one from yesterday, which feels like a fucking anachronism. In Corbin's Britain, we'd all get free candy floss at Mark's, spelled with an X, and Spencer. Um, and, And he says... Right, right about now, the man who remained neutral on Brexit, ah, because you know when you 
went anti-Brexit, that went really well with the election, yeah. would be ready to hold his referendum to decide what to do about coronavirus, remain at home versus leave to eat out. And it's like, yeah, the, 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 one, of the, one of the activities of the press has been too, and I spoke with Nate about this a while back, has to portray the left, the Labour Party specifically under Corbyn, and the left generally as actual, as mendacious and untrustworthy and foreign and other and alien, and mainly wanting to make Britain worse and more miserable for reasons that are only understandable to them. Um, yeah. And it has... I mean, and this is, it's culminated in, oh, I bet Corbin and Milne gave our boys Boris and Cummings coronavirus on purpose because of something Marx said. Marx said to do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not like there's been any incidents of, you know, uh, violence directed at labor politicians based on this kind of like... Uh, uh, right wing uh, muckraking and and lying and and oh, red yeah. so you would think you would it's think probably that Joe Cox fine, I'm sure. you would think that the Joe Cox murder in, in 2016 had never happened yeah it, it it's, never you, no one talks about ever it. gets mentioned no one talks no. about it it's, and it's for it's those of, of your these, listeners who don't know the story right in the run up to the to the Brexit referendum in 2016 a, a pro remain labor MP in the north of England was attacked by a guy on the street who yelled Britain first death to traitors and then stabbed and then shot her and she died mm -hmm. and it is never talked about and during yeah. the election anybody who went out canvassing has a story about getting getting yelled at or screamed at or threatened but you a do. number of people were beaten up i was i was a woman charged at me in in her front the front room or like the front hallway basically i was standing in the door when she tried to attack me um and uh numerous people were beaten up most of them elderly like the Jesus level of violence Christ. they've been they've been i mean you had canvassers in their 70s and 80s getting their ribs broken and getting concussions and stuff because people came up to them on the street and called them marxists and attacked them and stuff like the the extent to which this has been that when it happens it's treated as though it didn't happen and uh and and then when people mention that it happened or that they're inciting it again you're called you know snowflake sjw's or whatever the fuck yeah. like it's 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 galling but it's also it the the ability of the British right and the British sort of upper classes to very like laser target their own cognitive dissonance is unrivaled among mm. any people on this fucking planet, man. It's it's a it's a really grim situation. And I also think to, to Riley's previous point, uh, I think Britain is probably in the the boomer death grip more than any other country in terms of yeah. its politics are driven by the spite of people over sixty five. Who might die from coronavirus, but that's okay <laughs> yeah. as long as it makes their children sad. Yeah. Well, I mean, if if you want a little more, if you want a little more on this, right? Like, there uh, recently, like the the Home Office has been looking at their options to try to militarize the English Channel, and so far hasn't found a way to do it. But when interviewed by by a paper, one Tory MP said, "Pretty Patel, the Home Secretary, her plans will send the left into a meltdown," <laughs> meaning like. We're going to do war crimes on people. We're going to try our best to commit war crimes on people fleeing death and desolation and you know, bombs because of our um, pathological hatred of everybody under 50. And we, yeah. want the we want the world to be a place they do not choose to live in I because this is a bad island. <laughs> Jesus Christ. We had talked in the past, and I, I know Rob wanted to kind of go down the labor um, line and kind of what that what that means for going forward. But one thing I do want to get your 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 analysis and your commentary on is is the attacks on the NHS. And I remember seeing like there are protests in support of like pay raises uh, for for 
you know, NHS staff and, and nurses and, and, you know, kind of uh, essential personnel. Uh, but instead, I'm seeing that they're just they're cutting contact tracers and that mm-hmm. then the pay raises never happened. I mean, this just seems like counterintuitive with everything going on. And now we're seeing experts say if like if we don't like really tighten up now, it's going to get even worse in the fall. They did get a lot of uh, clapping, though, which I, which I believe yeah, they can they convert did. into oh, like sh- currency. Okay, well, forget and, that. Yeah. Just scrap and, what I just said. <laughs> we're all good. Oh, and also, yeah. don't forget, a fairy in the Thames did some donuts for them for a while. Yeah, yes. a bunch. <laughs> that was very, very inspiring. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, uh, recently there was a negotiation for public sector pay rises, but they managed, even in the face of this pandemic and the overtime that people have been working, to exclude the NHS workers from it because they had already gotten a pay rise negotiated through collective bargaining in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, they, yeah, the only thing that's changed as far as essential personnel in terms of pay rises or any kind of bonuses or benefits or anything along those lines is they have cut the fees for visa processing for people who work in what's designated essential fields by a couple hundred pounds, but they're still very, very expensive. Yeah, but um, 10%. It, yeah, something along those lines. It's it's it's, it's 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 negligible, and I mean, bear in mind this is the country that has probably the highest immigration fees, if if not in the world, certainly in the developed world. Um, you know, uh, someone who with a family of four immigrating here on a five-year work visa to work for the NHS, would it be expected to pay something along the lines? And I'm not joking, of in the ballpark of 60 to 80% of their post-tax income and visa processing fees. Because when you have the fees for every person, every dependent, everyone in your family, uh, it winds up requiring you to pay tens of thousands of pounds in cash. Like, so, and also immigrants come here and work jobs like that. Like that's a very common thing. And so in a way, like, I don't know how, but they basically operate on the assumption that everybody loves Britain so much. They'll just put up with being treated like dog shit. But uh, you have not seen the clap for the NHS stuff, clap for the carers, etc., cetera, uh, manifest in any kind of material gain for those people. Um, one thing that I, I thought was funny was that during the, the big kind of for the, the frenzied period of clapping every week, a big phenomenon seemed to be British people calling the cops on their neighbors for not clapping, which if you know <laughs> anything about Britain is the most fucking British thing that could ever happen. <sighs> <laughs> Yeah. No, but yeah. you mentioned like the the immigration controls and, and how difficult it is for people to legally immigrate. And then it's it's the same kind of dichotomy. You see this in America as well in Canada, where it's like, what? How are these people uh, immigrating illegally? How are they, how are they? Can't believe they'd be doing this. But it's like when all these other options are closed off, that's the only option that people are, are left with. And that's the other thing. Another reason I wanted to bring you guys on to talk about the British press because that was kind of the catalyst for that this week. When there's so much that they could be doing right now to hold the government to account for like the tens of thousands of deaths that they're directly responsible for. Yeah, and what they're doing instead they? is like chasing dinghies of filled with migrants across the channel mm-hmm, and like commenting mm-hmm. like it's a like it's a, a football match or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, incredibly okay, depraved but, shit there from the from the British press. But like, okay, here's here's the thing, right? Why would they? Why, why, why would they why would they try to hold the government's feet to the fire right because they see what happens when any journalist gets too aggressive with the government is that they get no more stories from the government and then the government just leaks press releases to journalists that are very friendly to them like Laura Koonsberg or whatever and then they reprint the press releases and then they get lots of retweets and then they and then, and they sort of they build those relationships and they rise within the organization you know it's 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 that like 
the, we like the idea that the media and the, the the news media especially exists to do Woodward and Bernstein stuff. But the fact is, you know, since since after nine eleven, you know, there there has been very little opportunity to do any of that. And even when it is done, there's very little impact, right? So if you think about the um if you think about the Panama papers, right? Like another item that has been completely just memory hold in the UK. If you think about uh, the, 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 the Snowden leaks, if you think about all these things, memory hold in the UK. And if you want to look at the moment where the British press really fucking turned, it's when GCHQ walked into the Guardian and into the Guardian's office and said, it is, this is now your opportunity to destroy all your hard drives containing all of the Snowden leaks. And they did it. And they did it, yeah, and they yeah, did it, yeah. and then, and then, the editor of the Guardian, the very oppositional sort of like, pu- like terrier, uh, who I can't remember who it was at the time, but he was replaced with Kath Viner, who came from the lifestyle section. Everyone who reported on NatSec was moved to other, um, other bits, other bits of the paper, and then the Nat- people reporting on NatSec were replaced with other softball reporters who reprinted press releases from MI6. You know, like. It, there's no looking at the state of the British media now as a transformation that's happened recently. You, you have to understand it as, as, as an, an industry like any other that has realized that it's, it, it is more successful and it makes more money and it makes more money for its owners and it and it's rocks the boat less with advertisers if it basically just reprints government press releases. And it's been like that for a while. Yeah, and I would also That's, say something too. I'm sorry to interrupt, but Jordan, your sorry. talk about the the NHS privatization, something to bear in mind too is that that's that's ongoing, but that's been ongoing for a while. And some of the the more insidious parts of NHS privatization started under John Major in the early '90s, but then were aggressively continued by Tony Blair and subsequently Gordon Brown in the 13 years that Labor were in power before the current iteration of Tories took over. So effectively, like this notion of there's just an elite one party state. That's been the case for a while, and it's just becoming it's becoming more and more obvious to to anybody who's paying attention. But I mean, any random sampling of polls about like should we murder migrants in the channel, in which you know everybody over sixty five, it's like ninety percent approval, shows you that you know the average British person uncritically consuming British media is just going to be turned into a reactionary. Um, to, to the point about. The Guardian destroying that hard drive is just it's so infuriating. There's that scene in Laura, Laura Poitras's uh, Citizen Four documentary about Snowden and, and Barton Gelman and Greenwald and all of them working on that initial story. At the very end, they show him like drilling holes into that hard drive at the mm-hmm. Guardian, and it's just like such a perfect encapsulation of just a, a, a media and a press capitulating to like government pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't think of anything more illustrative of just. <laughs> I don't know, man. Acquiescence to the, like those oh. huge, like like just national security I, interests and how it like d- it disadvantages readers. Uh, Jordan, I'll tell you uh, how you can think of something that is more subservient to national security interests, and that is Let's hear it. Uh, when the police and uh, Chinese police in Hong Kong were like storming People's Daily, um, or not People's Daily, rather, uh, the, 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 the Apple Apple Media, whatever it was called, right? The mm-hmm main response in the UK was imagine that happening here you can't imagine that <laughs> happening here and then just and then just 
It did. It did. It did. <laughs> it did happen here. You don't need to imagine it. Yeah, it happened, and you literally yeah, you liked it. it. Like, you thought it was cool, and you enjoyed it, and you would like it to continue. Yeah, yeah. It was important. Yeah, and there is. Yeah. It's like the way to understand Britain. If you want to understand the skeleton key to understanding the media derangement of this country, is their ability to just turn off bits of their brain. To just like to be, anything yeah. that goes against the idea that Britain is number one overall a good influence on the world, that it's always been a good influence on the world, that it's always right and just, that the conservatives are trying their best. They make mistakes sometimes, but you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like Rishi Sunak was shown by the BBC. Rishi, sorry, the Chancellor Rishi Sunak um, uh, was like the sort of minister of the economy, essentially, um, was shown. Uh, by the BBC, the neutral, not specifically in its um, constitution, required to be nonpartisan state broadcaster, as Superman. Superman, yeah. They, was they did a as, little animated yeah. cartoon for social media where they made <laughs> Rishi Sunak into Superman, yeah. Right. And so the. Also, bear the, in mind, this is the BBC that uh, they, I believe it was in 2019, did a oh, Newsnight yeah. special about uh, Jeremy Corbyn. I can't remember what the issue was, but they were implying that Corbyn was. Uh, Marley, maybe you remember what the issue yeah, was, they but they showed, were implying that he. They, they showed, showed him, him as with Lenin. red square in the background, yeah. and they took his hat that he used to wear, which is kind of like a Greek fisherman's hat, and they photoshopped it to look like an Ushianka. Like yeah. a big Russian fur hat, <laughs> and yeah. he just looks devious, like he's planning like a bombing or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and the, yeah, yeah. But the point I'm making here, right, <laughs> is that is that the 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 country has, I think, much like the American press does as well. I can't really speak for the Canadian press. By the time I left that country, I was like larval. Um, but there is the they have the memento disease where they remember everything for the last thirty or so days and then everything from before two thousand three. But no new memories have been formed <laughs> since two thousand and three and except for the last few weeks. And you know, as much as I the thing is, right, I go back and forth, right, on trying to criticize and understand these institutions based on what I think are fundamentally liberal assumptions about what they should be. Like the idea of a non ideological liberal press that like tries to just tell the truth and hold the government to account, like that's kind of a fantasy. Like I don't think that I kinda don't think that exists anywhere or has it for quite a while. But no. like it's nice to want. <laughs> um, yeah. But also, or I mean, like, I think the thing, yeah. too, is that to the extent to which you see it here in which uh, the Corbin project was utterly extirpated and then they turn around and they're like, oh, if only we had social democracy. Damn, it's really <laughs> unfair. These things are happening. If only we had a party. Like, students getting fucked over by an algorithm. If only they just voted for a party that would fix. It's like, guys, yeah, the just, could you just search your own tweets from exactly 12 months ago? <laughs> uh, seven months, nine months ago would be great to know what, what you were saying about that thing that existed as a left project in this country. Yeah. Well, that's what I wanted to mention next, because we've talked about how subservient the British press is to like the what they see as kind of the natural ruling class and how they completely let the Tories get away with absolute literal, like literally murder um, while framing them as kind of, oh, shucks, they're just doing their best. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it came to Jeremy Corbyn's four years leading the, or, you know, four or five years, whatever it was, leading the Labour Party, it was literally the complete opposite approach 100% unified opposition to everything that he said or did for that entire period and completely like poisoned the, the poisoned the well and made, made that project as, as much popular support as it had completely impossible to, uh, to see it through. Um, Sir, and that's, that's a trope. That's, that's, that's a trope. <laughs> I'm joking. Yeah, <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> no. 
I ain't gonna get, I ain't get you guys in trouble. It took four years, but it sure did work. I mean, like yeah. the the best the best comparison I could make is that if you think of of you know football players who uh, who you know somebody accidentally grazes them with their eyelash and they fall over like they've got a compound fracture. The British media yeah. did that all day every day for four and a half years. Yeah, and I think there's like you know tying it together with America and Bernie Sanders, kind of a similar political figure, similar political project. We saw a lot of the same stuff. Uh, I mean, we we started this show to kind of cover the the primary. And, uh, you know, it's been the same thing with Bernie Sanders for the last several years, but especially over the last six months of during that primary, um, you saw that same kind of like unified opposition. And I think when it comes to the failure of, of Sanders campaign, I don't want to say that's the only reason for what happened, but I think that was a big part of it. The fact that, Mm. um, even when it was shown that he was like able to win, he was putting together this incredible coalition they still just would not give him that positive media news cycle that maybe would have convinced people that were on the fence, people that were not so plugged into these conversations that, oh, this guy is actually not so bad. He's winning elections. Like maybe, yeah, maybe this guy's the who we can go with. Uh, they just refused at, at every level to uh, to give him that, that ben- the benefit there. Uh, yeah. The example that I always point to was after, you know, we talked about Nevada a lot on this show because that was when it really seemed like the, the whole project was coming together. Uh, the whole strategy was working and it looked like Bernie was on the way to like winning this Democratic nomination uh, after that really historic victory. And that I'll, I'll never forget this. I'll always keep talking about it was that the whole week after Nevada was spent talking about uh, Bernie, Bernie Sanders in the 80s praised Cuba's literacy program. Can you believe this? He's, he's <laughs> praising dictators. And it's, you know, just the, the, the willingness to talk about anything other than the, like what the actual substance of what was going on, uh, I thought was just so illustrative. And, uh, I think it was a, there's a really strong parallel with how the British press treated Corbyn with how the American press treated, uh, Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Well, I think the thing to understand here, right, is that, um, again, especially with media dullards, it's, it's that the, um, they don't understand the, the this is something that really is true in the uk right is that they understand the new new ideas for example or problem solving not to be a methodology or a category of ideas or whatever but a proper noun the new ideas came about in the 1990s versus everything that came before because you know much like dogs they don't recognize themselves in mirrors and they can't they can't understand that like many of them have like become old and that the new ideas in the 1990s that were exciting and revolutionary when they were starting their careers are quite simply like tried and failed. And it's, it's much the same with um, understanding what is politically possible, politically possible for them or politically desirable is again, it's a proper noun. It refers to something specific. It doesn't refer to the results of say, um, a contested and ongoing process. They don't see the world in motion. They see it as fixed, set down categories. And it is, it's again, it's a, it is a disease of kind of Whiggish liberalism to respond to a, um, a sort of, you know, system level crisis by continuing to push the reward button, hoping that the dopamine hit starts again. I, I and, would also and, throw and, in, Riley, something to bear in mind too, is that there also was what I believe you could say a, a realization of the danger that their class was in in 2017, because in the lead up to the 20, May declared, you know, she she called for a, a general election in 2017, primarily because labor was polling very poorly after nonstop, you know, just endless, endless, stupid attacks and fake scandals and so on. And then the labor uh, when 
the Labour Party, basically there there was a rebellion in the uh, the shadow cabinet. They had a leadership challenge. Corbyn won with an even larger percentage than he won in 2015 against Owen Smith. Uh, the Brexit referendum basically was the, the big inciting incident, but they had wanted an excuse. They had wanted when they, they hadn't lost enough by-elections and, and lost badly enough at local elections for them to challenge it previously. But, you know, in the lead-up, I think there was there was a primary, or not a primary law, I wish there were primaries here. There was a, um, there was <laughs> a by-election in early, exactly, in early, in early <laughs> 2017 where, uh, where Labor did poorly in one of its previous, you know, uh, strongholds. And as such, they just, May decided that they could get a huge majority for the Tory party. She, even if, if pro-Remain Tory MPs refused to vote for whatever Brexit deal they were coming up with, she would be able to you know, secure this majority that would deliver whatever the fuck they wanted. I mean, at the time, people were discussing it, and, and not like the Daily Mail or the Sun, but you know, even, even the, the, the more sanguine commentators as they exist were saying it would be a disappointment for May if she didn't wind up with a majority of 100. Like that's how badly they thought yeah. Labor was going to lose, um, and I think in a way there was an extent to which, for this brief instant, people the the British media had believed its own hype for so long that they they believed in the caricatured version of Corbyn that they'd created, and so their approach was just if we show Jeremy Corbyn, he's just such a big dumb Marxist buffoon who's going to talk about tractor factories, everyone will laugh at him and then they'll vote Tory, and they also believed their hype about May being the you know the reincarnation of Thatcher, and May was very uncharismatic. Their platform was terrible. They basically told British people, we're going to make you sell your house to pay for your own, you know, elderly care. And Corbyn actually was drawing crowds. The manifesto was really popular. His own party leaked to the manifesto to try to sink him, make him backtrack. And it wound up being really popular. <laughs> and genuinely, I think that if the, if the, if there had been one more week of campaigning, you probably, because the amount that labor was gaining in the polls, you probably would have seen a, a labor able to form a coalition government with the SNP in 2017. And it struck me that we maybe foolishly thought that when an election was called and election media coverage rules kicked in again, that this would produce the same effect. And it struck me that what they did was they were like, yeah, we're never doing that ever fucking again. Yeah, they and learned the their lesson. We're in, in 2019, where Boris Johnson showed up to a, a Remembrance Sunday event, hung over balls out of his mind, fucking looking like shit put the uh, wreath on upside down on the cenotaph and the BBC just played footage of him from 2016 and pretended it never happened. Uh, during live interviews, they yeah. cut up the footage to be played back on apps so that it, they spliced different questions and answers to make him seem less befuddled and to make some of the, the questions seem dumber and more insane from the people who were challenging him. Um, I mean, the extent to which anything... Any time you know there was coverage that made the Tories look negative, it was just either edited out of existence or portrayed in a way that made them look positive. Like you felt like I can't remember the the, the American talking head who it was who said that if Bernie Sanders wins that they're gonna you know set up death camps in Central Park or whatever. But when that Chris happened, Matthews. It was Chris yeah. Matthews. Thank you. I, I I just remember saying you know like look if Bernie continues to do well, this is this is what it was like every minute of every day of the 2019 GE, and this is what yeah. it's gonna be like like nonstop. That this is what they're gonna do and. You know, I wasn't I wasn't hoping to be vindicated, but that's honestly, if that felt disorientating, if you saw that and you were like, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills, that's that's the closest, in my opinion, that it came to being what it was like here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's about right. Um, the other thing, right, is like we on 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 TF, like we try not to like be like, ah, what if Corbin? What if Corbin? What if Corbin? It's just if you want to understand the relationship of the British media to the ruling class and to most British people, it's like, it's such a perfect test case. 
it's it's such a it's such a good like natural experiment to see how they react to see how the media consensus shifted around different stimuli um, that were sort of presented to them. And again, I I think I don't even go so far as to say it's a conspiracy. I don't think it's a conspiracy. I just think that you know there it's is, pretty out in the open. Yeah. Well, it's not even that it's out in the open. It's just that this is a country that is. And, and again, I think this is the case in the States as well. It's just here, it's much more smug. It's This is a country that is ludicrously deferential. And I think you only get to that... And, and again, I think this is a since 2001 thing. I think you only get to the certain commanding heights of being able to just sort of idly shape public opinion if you, are go, if you show power, you're not a threat to them. And I think it, it, in Britain it sort of cashes out as a sort of... Um, cre- the, the thing, if you want to look at sort of what the, the standard British columnist response is to say that they're scared or chilled or, um, or, or, or perturbed by what this means or whatever. You know, uh, children, like transgender children allowed to, you know, um, self-identify and present as the gender that they feel like in schools. This is a chilling per, uh, per- premonition of things to come. You know, this is, this is what they do is they're, they're scared and they're there to make you scared. Um, and they're, they don't need to lie to get those jobs because that's how they actually feel because anyone who had to lie to get that job wouldn't get that job. Um, and I think if you want to understand as well how individual personalities with their willingness to be scared on behalf of whatever sort of establishment side of a culture war there is, well, you know, or pretending they're an insurgent side of a culture war, you know, like uh, saying, oh, you'll go to jail if you say you're conservative. Uh, Boris Johnson's so brave to admit to being a conservative, <laughs> etc. If only. Like, yeah. yeah, there's there's a real there's a real tendency in uh, the British media like that, the right of the British media, but nevertheless. Um, is to understand the, the structure of how it works, which is that it all responds to the broadsheets um, because any individual newspaper does not have a high readership. And the BBC doesn't necessarily ha- even have a high, high viewer numbers for its politics programs. But what it does is um, the way that the news gets talked about on TV is that the BBC will frequently do a paper review where... They will look at the headlines of what the news decide of the newspapers decide to print. So that'll be like the Guardian, the Telegraph, the Times, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Much of it is owned by Rupert Murdoch. Others are owned by people who are actually recently becoming more fascist than Rupert Murdoch. Um, so we have a oh, constellation of reactionary newspapers. We don't just have Murdoch. Um, any case, and and so what they'll do is then they'll review the papers on the BBC uh, TV and BBC Radio. And then with that conversation having happened, then the um, right-wing Facebook groups or whatever will then clip that, and then they'll have their clips. Um, And so there is a very clear pipeline, right, of official respectable-looking people reading from the official respectable-looking papers that you've, you know, your parents read when the 1960s or whatever when you were a kid. And there is this chain of respectability where you know ultimately the there is like for one sort of tremulous liberal voice that you know um poured sulfuric acid on its own computer because gchq coughed um there's like you know eight um you know outright fascists many of whom literally supported hitler in the 30s um 
of the papers support, would just support Hitler in the 30s. Like, they were outright Nazis. They thought the problem with Hitler was that he was foreign, not that he was a fascist. Um, and <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, look up the Daily Mail archives. Um, anyway... Uh, and and so these these headlines they get read out and then they're reacted to all day by everyone else and so the the deference even between for, between forms of media to what they see as the more legitimate print the more classic print media it, it's it's even evident here right and so there's no understanding of the british media that yeah it doesn't it, that need, it needs to understand how first the individual players in the media sit in the british class system and in relation not just to class but to say like government government authority and like sort of social legitimacy and their position relative to the you know unwashed dum-dums but also um their own insecurities also like the way the different types of media relate to one another and just exactly why Britain is so psychotic. It's because its media is driving it crazy every day because it's stuck in this feedback loop that, to be honest, it wants to be in. Yeah, and you mentioned like the difference between 2017 and 20, 2019 with, with Corbyn, and that, that was it. It's like it didn't seem like in 2017 because they had focused so much on his platform, just assuming that it was going to be unpopular and it had the opposite effect. They clearly went with a sort of different strategy. Uh, for this this last general election, and a lot of the people that I talked to that were door knocking, uh, you know, and labor uh, labor activists, people that were trying to get the word out, I know that's I know that's like what they were hearing on the doorstep a lot. Like he's a terrorist sympathizer. That's the first thing they understand about Corbyn is that he likes terrorism and thinks it's good, hates the UK, and all these things that like you could tell they were not spending time actually talking about the policies that he was pushing for, uh, and that really did have an, have an impact. And I guess that's the kind of thing I'm wondering because we've seen how uh, how unified the sort of establishment press is towards these left populist movements. I think the Corbyn and Sanders campaigns have been very, very illustrative examples of the difficulties that people are going to have. Because if you believe in these kind of movements, that that's a pretty tremendous obstacle. The fact that you're going to be completely uh, uh, stymied at every at every turn by this completely hostile press who's going to hold you to account much more than the actual people like with political power who are like responsible for, for deaths and misery and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and yeah. also there's no doubt in my mind that had Bernie Sanders actually won this primary and become the democratic nominee for president, I'm absolutely certain that he also would have been undermined, not just by the press, but by people in the party, in the democratic party uh, would have been working against him just as they were in the Labour Party. Uh, you know, you talked about uh, 2017 and how close Corbyn was to forming the government and what could have possibly happened there. But, you know, it's also true that if there weren't actual people in leadership positions in the Labour Party working to undermine him and ensure that he lost, uh, you know, that also could have been a different result. But they would actually rather lose than cede any power whatsoever to the left. And I have zero doubt that we would have seen that play out in America as well. I think it's important to note that that's that that's a that's alleged in the report. Um, I I think that just just even for covering our asses, that's alleged in the report. Mm. Um, you know they are they are suing a lot of people about it. Yeah, but I'll also tell you this much because we saw it on TV. Allegedly, uh, Jess Phillips, who who at one point was um, trying to be the labor leader, who has been uh, she's a. She's a transphobe. She tries to make money off of uh, her, she try or she tries to, to to gain clout by you know selling herself as someone who's who 
uh, insults one of the very few black women MPs in the Labor Party. She's a horrible person. Uh, she's, but she sells herself as being this like working class person, even though her parents were extremely wealthy because she has a regional accent. Um, she was caught. There's a segment where they were about to go live, and they went live on TV the night of the election. Uh, before she realized they were live, she was basically like giddy, cheering, happy because they had lost. And there was another MP, her staff, uh, Stella Creasy, she's an MP. She wasn't in the pub, but her staff were in the pub in Walthamstow in her constituency, um, and they were cheering every time it was announced a Labor MP lost a seat. Uh, you know, and numerous activists who had gone door knocking in Walthamstow for Stella Creasy were in that same pub. And there's like, what the fuck are you doing? And, you know, her staff called them misogynists because they thought Laura Koonsberg, the, the BBC stenographer, was an idiot. You know, stuff <laughs> like that. Um, I, I did a count, you know, one time because I was just angry and bored. And I think of the labor MPs who supported Owen Smith's challenge to Jeremy Corbyn in 2016, 105 of them are still MPs. So that gives you an idea of in a party of like, we have what, like 202, 203 labor yeah. MPs, something like that. So even with the calling that took place, 50% of the labor's parliamentary party are people who are, who declared themselves hostile to the Corbin project. Yeah. Cause I was going to say it, like, it's not just the information that's the alleged information that's in this report that is not confirmed. Uh, no one, no one sue us over any of these comments, but you can see just from their, you know, like you're pointing out just from their own either public actions I mean, and statements, the fact the that they were, they the, were indeed trying to undermine him from within the party. The, the guy who was the, who was the, the, the shadow health secretary, an interview leaked like the day or the second day before the election, John Ashworth, that he was in a pub meeting with a guy who was like a, a Tory friend of his or something. And they recorded him basically saying that if Corbin won, that the army was going to throw him out. Yeah. Like... You know cool. what I'm saying? And, I mean, that, that's, is, that's the extent to which that's somebody who's on the front bench. That's someone who said, I'm willing to work on your leadership team or like, you know, in your, 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 your shadow cabinet, like the extent to which the rot was everywhere. I mean, this just, yeah, it's, it, it's hard to look at it and say, you can take a, you know, a, a corporatized notionally social democratic party and actually lead a left electoral project with it. Yeah. I mean, we, we've touched, we've touched on this a bit. But one thing I can't help but take from this conversation is how, you know, the ruling class and the media works hand in hand. And, and you mentioned Murdoch, but it, and it, and it does go beyond that family uh, and, and their network of papers. And it's like it's for so many people, if you're if you're unfamiliar with politics in, in, in Britain or even Australia, if you look at how like Scott Morrison is being being treated so similarly to uh uh, Boris Johnson, and also now like this weird like Pentecostal like evangelical pivot that Morrison is doing in Australia right now. Um, but these types of things and these efforts are are being championed and protected by the media, and and we mentioned it earlier as well. But the <laughs> the knee jerk reaction when Bernie won Nevada, I mean, it wasn't just that week; it was like literally an hour after it was decided. Yeah, Chris Matthews was on MSNBC saying it was like the fall of France. <laughs> and it was just like, as someone who was knocking doors there, uh, didn't, you know, take myself to be uh, a Nazi or, or represent that uh, that type of affront. But sure enough, yeah, the within within minutes, it was, oh, shit, but this is this is just like the fall of France. And, and here comes like the destruction of, of society. Um, but that re re reflects what we're seeing in Britain and in Australia. And now here it's just they will protect capital interests. A capitalist interest, um, even if it means like uh, 
going to the detriment of your health and well-being uh, in the middle of a pandemic. And it's, just, it's, it's horrifying to think about. This isn't a purely American problem. So many people here think it's mm. just like the American media in general. And it's, it's, it's not. Yeah. And, and even when I'm saying like, oh, I'm, I'm sure Bernie would have been undermined from within the party. I mean, you don't even have to speculate because the actions of the party throughout that primary after South Carolina, when when the only one who would actually come close to winning anything, Pete Buttigieg dropped out and endorsed Biden. This was clearly coordinated so they could stop Bernie Sanders, uh, allegedly also at the behest of Barack Obama pulling the strings behind that. And this isn't even a fucking conspiracy theory. At John Lewis's funeral, Bill Clinton was like, "Yeah, we did that," and there's like laughing about it. <laughs> so it's not even it's not even this yeah. open speculation. They literally have openly talked about it, and they don't care. And yeah, if Bernie had won, there's no doubt that that with that kind of stuff would have for sure continued. I don't know if you've seen Ryan Grimm and Owen Higgins is reporting in the Intercept about what's going on in the primary race, and uh, I don't know the name of the district, but it's a district in Massachusetts where Amherst. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the the but the basically. The attempt to smear the uh, the openly gay progressive or left candidate um, as an abuser and that it was effectively revealed to be a catfishing operation that the Massachusetts, Massachusetts Democratic Party knew about uh, and that effectively they were being advised by a senior lawyer in the Massachusetts Democratic Party who is like the grandson of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. <laughs> and this is to protect a guy who is avowedly anti-Medicare for all. Uh, who you know was at one point I think served on the board of a private insurance corporation and has definitely taken a ton of money from private insurance corporations and so like that's the Democratic Party you know as it stands I mean Biden Biden in a Politico uh, sort of like anonymously sourced thing Biden's team said that they're not even going to try for a public option in his first sort of year of legislation if he wins because they don't think it's worth it mm. and it's like no must be nice. <laughs> Well, look, if you want to connect all this back to like back to the media, right? If you want to connect all this back to journalism and the, the job of journalism is I think you have to look at it on its own terms, right? Because the, jur the journalists who are doing this probably don't wake up and say, hmm, a great day to conspire with the ruling class to make sure that, you know, better things aren't possible or whatever. They I do probably... think they do that, actually. But... <laughs> But I, I think realistically, if you think they don't do that, which yeah, I think is not unreasonable, I think a lot of them still think that they're like crusaders for truth and things of that nature. Yeah. You have to like, uh, but you have to understand how they define these things. So like, why the British, why the British press is so keen to hold the public to account, for for example, is that they have a conception of themselves, and this is true with the American press as well. They have a conception of themselves as defenders of a certain order. And that that order can come to threat, you know, like they, they when they they that order can come to threat from um, elite elite in mismanagement or elite incompetence. I think the American press is actually slightly more willing to hold their elites accountable for mismanagement and incompetence, but nevertheless, um, or it can come from um, the the pop like the popular forces that are. Um, hypnotized by a demagogue or whatever and because they think in categories because they think of the good policies and the bad policies the new ideas and the old ideas and so on what they end up doing is they end up paranoia paranoically defending a certain set of conditions whether that is um say like medicare for all in the states or whether that's sort of the general prospect of a left-wing government here or whatever as um as as, as aberrant you know, as they, they, they think that being a warrior for truth and light and reason and all this uh, requires taking those lessons they've internalized 
that healthcare needs to be rationed in the market or whatever, or else, you know, everyone dies. Um, and then fighting uh, an against all odds battle against a corrupted people, you know, like they see, and you have to, I think you can't, you can't understand them as being like, well, another day of defending the health insurance industry. I'm sure some of them are like that, such as, for example, allegedly Malcolm Gladwell. But um, I, I, if you, I think most of them, and if you want to look at like the reason that there is such a kind of lockstep media is because of these sort of common institutional beliefs within that community of practice. And it's more complex than um, just, you know, they tend to gainsay most of what is popularly desired. Now, again, in Britain, it's different because they're genuinely spiteful people. Um, but I, if you want to look at what's in common, I think it is it is this idea that they are the defenders of something worth defending. And that just so happens to be the way they thought things were in 1997. Yeah, and it's it actually... It, like you mentioned that that uh, Alex Morse campaign in uh, Amherst, and what you're saying, I mean, it, it's also another thing I was mentioning a couple of weeks ago, which is that especially when it comes to liberals in the media, and how they are so like against these left populist uh, projects, uh, like as you mentioned, they don't get up and saying I'm I'm doing this because I'm against helping people. If you ask them, they would say no, I support all these things, but they find some woke way of 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 attacking these these movements. Uh, in a way that can, they can position themselves as being the, a good person because they support all these things, but they can't support this possible person because of X reason. In the UK, you, with, of course, with Corbyn, it was anti-Semitism uh, because they couldn't really uh, levy that same attack against Sanders, even though they actually tried a couple times. Uh, it was, you no know, because it was a, he was a misogynist. It was a movement for white bros. Uh, whatever, and with the same thing with that uh, the Alex Morse uh, race, uh, you know, it's not because he's this kind of populist progressive type is the reason where we want to get we want to uh, uh, damage his campaign, but you know because he sent like a winky face emoji to a, a oh, someone whoa, younger whoa, than whoa, him. Whoa, 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 Sorry, yeah. hold on. You're you're leaving out one key detail. Okay. Not only did he send, I hope your weekend went well. He also added them to his close friends list on Instagram, which. Ooh. I, I mean, that's literally murdering somebody. Yeah, solidarity to the survivors of that horrible... Uh, Jesus <laughs> Christ. But you know what I mean? It's like they, they'll never come out and say why they're against these things. And then they don't wake up and say, I'm against people having health care. I'm against uh, uh, these these popular progressive mm-hmm. ideas. But they've got to twist themselves into this pretzel to to uh, attack these to attack to the left in this woke way and use this kind of like progressive language in order to do it. Um, which is frustrating because it, I think it makes it harder to actually uh, confront actual anti-Semitism and confront actual uh, misogyny and racism and things like this. Um, and that's why it's uh, that's why it's extra uh, creepy and gross. I think is because they they actually make they make it harder to confront these very real problems by so cynically using them in order to topple these progressive movements, whether it's Sanders or Corbyn, Alex Morse or whoever. Riley was yeah. talking about Aisha Hazarika here, who is, you know, former advisor to Ed Miliband and now is on Times of London Radio. But, um, you know, there was a whole thing where one of her close friends, apparently, according to her, is a guy named Tom Newton Dunn, who's a journalist for The Sun. And in the lead up to the election, like maybe a week or 10 days before the election, Dunn published an article on The Sun's website, basically... Uh, talking about like how the British left had been infiltrated by cultural Marxists, and it was this deranged flowchart that was sourced from a website, and I'm not joking, called Aryan Unity, and it was <laughs> oh a full-on Nazi site. 
you know, with with like Zionist conspiracy, like like you know, fucking protocols of the elders of Zion level of just delusions about the the influence and control of both Jewish people and also the state of Israel. And this, the 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 Sun deleted the article from the site. Dunn didn't lose his job. No one ever mentions it. If you if you add him on Twitter, he'll block you about it. But this completely passed without comment. And I just, I mean, there aren't really any left wing newspapers in Britain to speak of. But the closest equivalent is the Guardian, of course, which is just sort of I would argue is a center right liberal newspaper. But I just, it, even the counterfactuals aren't useful. But it's just one of those things where you think, okay. Boris Johnson published a novel in which he created a character through through the perspective of one of his characters sees, you know, that, that the Jews run the entire world media and can change the result of elections if they want to. Never mind the insanely Islamophobic, nativist, xenophobic, sexist, sure. garbage, racist, incredibly racist stuff in this novel. Tom Newton Dunn, in support of the Tories, publishes articles sourced from Aryan Unity. Uh, the Tories have a commemoration ceremony for the first woman MP to a, a, a statue of the first woman MP to take her seat in the 1930s, a woman named Nancy Astor, who famously actual said, Nazi, yeah, actual Nazi, who said, you know, <laughs> I hope that Hitler solves the Jewish problem. Um, and we we joked about this online, but basically, if you follow the election coverage in, in Britain, it was you know Monday through Thursday is Jeremy Corbyn is an anti semite. Uh, Friday commemorate the Nazi statue, and then Saturday and Sunday Jeremy Corbyn is an anti semite. And it's just the extent to which it was just so so deranged and relentless and not based on. I mean, that's a discussion if you want to go in depth about about what the source of all this was. And there were some absolute missteps, and there a lot of them were to do with people who. Uh, may have been labor members or some were labor members, but it really was an organizational problem of a party that, based on a leaked report, was more hung up on the idea of kicking out members from being too left wing than it was in kicking out members who literally were engaging in Holocaust denial. And so all of this stuff, it just seems so disingenuous and relentless. And obviously, it's ulterior motives. Like We know we can see what they are, but you know, on its face, you basically handed this argument to a bunch of moronic British people that they were they were the actual anti-racists in supporting a, a just absurdly racist and xenophobic and chauvinistic party which is the Tories and you know to this day anytime we post about anything I, I mean I'm I'm a Jewish American and I fucking get just deluged with people calling me an anti-semite and then when they find out that I'm Jewish calling me a self-hater and ask or even hilariously asking me like why I don't move to Israel it's just like uh uh guys you know what I mean yeah. like well you mentioned Ed Miliband too like wasn't when he was running for to be prime minister wasn't one of the primary press uh themes about Ed Miliband was like this guy's way too Jewy to possibly get to uh, yeah <laughs> oh, was sorry excuse me are you talking in the past tense <laughs> Oh, yeah. ludicrous. Just a couple of months ago, the fucking Evening Standard drew a cartoon of him that was all nose. And then <laughs> when it was pointed out to them that it was like, hey, this seems pretty anti-Semitic. The cartoonist like showed a photo of Ed Miliband and said, no, look, his nose. <laughs> his nose is gigantic, okay? Like, I drew him accurately. Yeah, I mean, it's like, this, this country is like irredeemable. <laughs> But I mean, also one of the things that yeah, you'll you'll see this happen constantly. The the bad faith attacks. Corbin published a foreword to a book that's on imperialism that was published in like 1901. That's widely considered a book that it's like you know emblematic of a study of the time and that is still consulted as a historical source. But the author, being a British guy who was an adult in 1901, was a raging anti-Semite, and they said Corbin didn't address that in the foreword. But then today. 
Keir Starmer published an op-ed saying send the kids back to school in September in the Daily Mail, which was run uh, by a guy named Viscount Rothermere in the 30s who famously published an op-ed under his own name entitled Hurrah for the Black Shirts, by which he means Oswald Mosley's fascist street gang. And also, yeah. like the, the, to, to add all to this, right, um, don't bother pointing out hypocrisy. It's a waste of time. Uh, it's, yeah, I'm not, it, it I'm not saying a, that like no, I'm talking to the hall monitor. I'm scoring no, points. No, no, no. It's more Sorry, like, but what for I your mean, listeners, for people to understand it, like yeah. this is the level of bad faith bullshit we were dealing with 24 oh. seven. Yeah. Uh, so to be, to be clear, I'm 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 agreeing with you. I'm saying that this isn't about pointing out hypocrisy. It's about understanding. Um, it's about understanding where the pieces are, and there is no amount of um, there is no amount of uh, posts you can make. There's nothing you can really you can't really convince uh, the, the British or American media to like set these ideas down and to stop being terrified at, or at equal turns terrified of or suspicious of or dismissive of or outright furious at you know, the idea of political change beyond what they have been conditioned to say is uh, appropriate. It's It's about understanding sort of where the pieces are, and the fact that ultimately, like, I think we have to accept, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot, that as much as we like to call ourselves socialists, the Corbyn and Sanders projects both had a lot of liberal assumptions built into them. A lot. Yep. These, uh, the fundamental idea was, we, if we just make the better offer, but instead of doing it the wrong way using PR, like those Pesachified parties have tried to do, you know, like PR and getting... You know, fucking no billy eilish to fucking sing the fight song or whatever all that cringy nonsense um if we just do it better if we make a better offer to people they'll go with us and i mean that's fundamentally a liberal assumption it assumes that for example the press is going to report on you honestly that's a core assumption that if i have this policy and i make it public the press will say here is riley's policy for schools or whatever and won't then won't look at my policy for schools see that it's outside the realm of acceptability and then say riley's policy for schools um you know uh, will it cause them all to burn down with the children inside how could he be a mon such a monster if this is true you know like and the, just the assumption that these things would would go through these neutral pipes that is so fucking liberal man okay well okay the last thing i just wanted to get you guys to weigh in on is um obviously a lot of people on the left that really believed in that corbin project are very disillusioned right now with the labor party and we're seeing a mirror of that as well where so many of the people that were very very excited about bernie sanders and worked really hard to make make that agenda a reality are also disappointed with the democratic party and very disillusioned and and don't really want to support them and in both cases i think you have a party with the with the new labor party and the democratic party post primary that are kind of indicating to people like we don't really want you we don't like you we don't want to to fight for your ideas we think they're stupid and we don't really care whether you're involved or not so in, in the face of that what do you think the like how should people re respond to that like do you still believe that the Labour Party is somewhere that that people that believe in that kind of socialist vision is like? Do they still have a home there? Should they still be working to 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 uh, get the Labour Party elected? And they, similarly, like, should like what should people uh, in the Democratic Party who are kind of like dipping their toe into supporting the Democratic Party just because of Bernie Sanders should they continue to support this party 
when it's been made clear that like none of their ideas are are going to be going to be uh, advanced uh, in any way. I don't know. I mean, if if there's no consequence, if you can never withdraw your support, then what leverage do you have? I don't know. None. So, you know, should you support the Democratic Party? I mean, I don't know. I'm not American. I don't live in America. But if I were there, I don't know. Maybe. Probably not. Meh. I mean, the thing is, right? Same thing with the Labor Party. I don't know. Meh. I left because I want to spend that money on beer. Um, I didn't leave. It's like, ah, oh, I'm leaving. It's like, okay, I could spend my money better. Uh, I'd rather have beer. Um, and like, okay, there's, there's this concept in, um, in machine learning. It's a relatively basic concept in machine learning called gradient descent. And I think it's a really good analogy for how to understand what has happened to the allegedly progressive parties in the UK and US. So in order to get this, this analogy, you have to imagine you're on like a, a three, a three part axis, right? An, an X, Y, and Z axis. And uh, on that axis, there's an undulating field with, uh, with hills and valleys and what you your job is you start at a random point on the field and your job is to find the lowest point on that field you take one step in any random direction and if you end up lower than you did on the previous step you take another step in that direction if you end up higher you step back and take another step in another random direction until you end up lower what this means is that you take a slightly winding path to the nearest lowest point to you that you happen to set out in front of right? You have now found what is called the local optimum. You have found the lowest point in your area that you happened to walk to, and you're now stuck yes. there. If you take a direct a step in any direction, then by the rule of gradient descent, that algorithm, you'll have to take a step backward. So you can very easily get stuck. Now, if you imagine another condition, which is that, say, every single entity standing above a certain level on that field, say, call this condition climate change or um, uh, uh, something like a global pandemic without a functioning public health system, then you lose the game. You know, if this is, then you are um, found at fault, right? And if your goal is to not be at fault and you find yourself at a local optimum that is not at the right level to not lose the game, then it literally does not matter what you do to try to keep yourself at that optimum because you are as dead cool. if you're there or if you're at something like less of a local optimum, like if the Republicans or the Tories are in power. If you are facing a zero one binary choice of is this enough to continue surviving or is it not, then being at a local optimum that is not enough to continue surviving is the same as being at the highest point on this, on this uh, uh, map. So why would you bother? I mean, that's, I, I like that analogy, Riley. I would just say, I think the situation is slightly different in the, in between the U.S. and the U.K. because I think, should you, I mean, should you vote for the Democrats or should you vote for the Labor Party? I don't see any reason not to in the sense that I think that uh, in America specifically, but also in, in the United Kingdom, that, you know, completely unfettered Tory and or Republican control will always produce worse outcomes. Um, but I also think that in the U.K., Involvement in the Labour Party involves being a fees-paying member. You have to pay monthly fees, going to meetings. It's very undemocratic. There's almost n very little of it is done on secret ballot. It can be very confrontational. Um, I don't see any reason to be a member of the Labour Party until uh, it it is re it becomes clearer that you are not there just to provide you know sort of veneer of democratic respectability for uh, a, a center-right neoliberal party. Nate and Riley, thank you so much okay. for, for taking the time to talk to us. So where could people find uh, your show, Trash Future, and follow you guys on Twitter? 
God, we have so there are just there are th- one of the things the lockdown <laughs> has done is it's created a lot of different podcasts under like a lot of different podcasts are now sort of in the TF extended universe. So on any podcast device you listen to, Spotify, whatever, uh, Trash Future, it's all one word. You can find it. Um, we uh, also, uh, I, as I mentioned, I have a show within a show on the Trash Future Patreon with uh, Andrew Law of Bunta Vista uh, called the Boney Island Whitefish, where we discuss season <laughs> five of the police procedural Bones. Uh, it was on in 2009, <laughs> and it is a huge fucking mess. It's a lot of fun. Uh, we just did an episode with Will Meneker about the um, episode of Bones where the Bones team solves the JFK assassination in the most cowardly way possible. I, uh, so for me, you can... You can well, <laughs> uh, for me, I am also a co-host of Trash Future. I also run a podcast that is a leftist anti-war take on the military by myself and another army veteran uh called what a hell of a way to die you can also find that on basically any podcast distribution network and um yeah thank you for listening well yeah thanks for thanks for joining the show it was a pleasure to catch up with both of you guys and uh good luck out there good luck on (laughs) on turf island i hope you don't uh you don't go too too mad from the oh god all the stuff going on there we'll try we'll try yeah (laughs) Hey, hey, you know what? Bad island. Yeah. It is yeah. it is one of one of the worst islands out there. Yeah, it's not good. Th- thank you so much again. Island status. Bad. <laughs> Take care, guys. Later. <laughs> Later. So that is the end of the episode, everyone. But before we go, we just wanted to give a quick shout out and to say thank you to Deegan, our intern. Uh yeah, that's right. We often joke about having uh, interns um on the show, but we actually did have a a summer intern over the last couple of weeks, uh, Deegan did a tremendous job uh, helping us put together our like video clips that we were sharing online uh, for each episode. Uh, it was a pleasure having him work with us. He is leaving to both go back to school, and I believe he's working on a race as well, a DA race for uh, Gordon McLaughlin. He is a progressive Democrat. He's running for district attorney in uh, Larimer and Jackson County in Colorado. So that's a race that we should all be keeping an eye on. Uh, so you can follow Deegan at Posting Menace on Twitter. Uh, everyone give a follow to Deegan. Once again, Deegan, thank you very much. Just a, just a lovely young man. Uh, it, was a, it was a pleasure having him uh, around the Insurgents LLC Global HQ office day in and day out this summer. You know, often we worked him pretty hard, you know, often 18 hours a day and stuff. Of course, he doesn't have access to the the lunch spreads and snacks and stuff because it's just intern status. But he did he did a tremendous job. Um, it was a pleasure having him around. And so, Deegan, thank you very much, and thank you for listening, everyone. We will be back with another episode uh, next week. And that is all. Goodbye.